from the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Well, I just feel like singing, Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. It is Advent. This is our first ever Advent episode. That's right, because our first year of podcasting. That's right. How about it? It's a new liturgical year. Nice. You know what I love about Advent, Wendy? Tell me. You know this, actually, because I've told you. But I want the listeners to know. I want the listeners to know, not only does my wife crack an egg Amazingly. Thank you very much. <laughs> and if you don't know what I'm talking about, you'll have to listen to episode one. But my wife makes a most beautiful Advent wreath. Oh, thank you. You do. Thank you. I really love it. Well, thank you to Rosemary McCabe, who taught me how to make it. Rosemary, if you're listening. Yeah, it's like, it's there's, <laughs> it's tight and really nicely round. <laughs> And <laughs> a round Advent wreath. And, wow. But see, uh, yeah, sometimes, you know, Advent wreaths are kind of strangely shaped, <laughs> at least the homemade versions. And yours is, yours does, yours homemade, but it doesn't seem homemade. It, it seems like a, prof- you're like a professional oh, Advent wreath maker. Oh, gosh. Thanks, love. Yeah. Thank you for <laughs> making is, Advent wreaths. It's a good wreaths. thing. It's a nice It's an amazing time. You know tradition. what it is? It's a time of longing. It's a time to get in touch with our longing. That's what Advent is. We don't tend to think of that. Mm-hmm. But the church gives us the O antiphons yes. in Advent. And, and that song is actually based on the O antiphons. That's right. O come, O come. Yeah. O come, O come, right? Mm-hmm. The, whole, the whole idea of the O antiphon is sometimes... Which, by the way, is part of the Liturgy of the Hours. So maybe yeah, not everyone going right. to just regular Sunday Mass even knows. But with an antiphon o, yes. is kind of like a refrain in the the prayer of priests and religious communities. And there are these refrains during Advent that are said together that begin with O, and it's an expression of longing. longing. Yes. And of course, if I'm thinking of O's... And longings yeah, I know. and song. I know. Who am I thinking of? Bono. Bono. Yeah. Nobody does the O <laughs> of longing like That's Bono. Right. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's Bono. Yeah. That's the O antiphon. That's Advent. So get that's Advent. Get in touch good. with your inner O longing. I like your Advent song there. That was uh, really good. If you know that song that was, if you know what song that was. Then uh, send me a little note, <laughs> all you U2 fans out all there. Right. So I like this first question because, you know, in Theology of the Body teaching, we often reflect on the meaning of the Genesis texts. Yes, we do. And they're kind of profound insights about man and woman. And this is a question from someone who's struggling with Genesis. Okay. And I think that's... Very natural, and so I'm happy to share this question from Tony, who asks, God saw Adam was alone in the garden, and so gave him a mate, Eve. But I don't see how this made Adam any different from all the other animals. Didn't all the other animals have a mate? (laughs) And weren't they all made male and female? If so, (laughs) why was Adam the only animal made male? And not male and female. If God made all the animals male and female at the beginning, well, why didn't he make man male and female at the beginning? And and how does being male and female make man any different from the other animals? So I we're getting the theme. Oh yeah. Oh it's yeah, this is one. good stuff. Yeah. Tony, you're a thinker. I know. 
I like Tony's thinking. I do too. I think I have some light to shine on this, Tony. Wendy, you'll keep me on track if I'm, there's a lot going on there. So sure, if yeah. I'm missing any of the elements okay. as I unfold this, mm-hmm. please let me know. So yes, indeed, all of creation has up and down the ladder of life forms, you have this sexual difference, right? But what is different about the human being? Mm-hmm. The human being has something that the mere animals, and I say mere animals because we are animals, but we're not mere animals. Mm. There's something else. We have this mysterious breath of life breathed into the dust of our humanity. We are made, and it says this only for the human being, we are made in the image and likeness of God as male and female. So Pope Francis put it this way. He said, we see the sexual difference up and down the ladder of life forms, of different life forms, but only in the human being is the sexual difference connected with the image and likeness of God. What does this mean? What is this image and likeness of God? It's the capacity for love. On the outside, if you're just looking at the biology, if you're just looking extrinsically at the reality, the biological reality, Tony's exactly right that, you know, the copulation of animals and what a man and a woman, a human beings do, look exteriorly very similar. But interiorly, they are worlds apart. Oh, that was a perfect cue from our barking dog again. <laughs> um, that's Mandy. The difference interiorly between Mandy, our dog, mating, Mm -hmm. and a husband and a wife becoming one flesh, the difference is freedom. It's the difference between instinct, which is just an animal drive that cannot be said no to, and freedom, the freedom of the gift, which is the capacity for loving. Freedom is the capacity for love. So what do we have that the animals don't have? Freedom. What's the freedom for? Loving. This makes the joining of a man and a woman in one flesh worlds apart from the copulation of animals. And John Paul goes way deep into this distinction with a concept he calls original solitude. It says in the Genesis text, it is not good for the man to be alone. And this aloneness is not only the male without the female. The word here, it is not good for the man to be alone. In the the biblical language, Adam is not first the male, a guy, a male named Adam, but Adam, small a, Adam, is generic for the human person, the human being. Mm -hmm. And this deeper meaning of solitude is precisely this that Adam, the human being, discovered he was alone in the visible world as a person. He did not find a helper suitable for him among the animals because there's something different, fundamentally different. Not just a difference in degree, but a difference in kind Mm -hmm. between the human person and a mere animal. Person is the word we use to distinguish what a human being is from what an animal is. And I know in the modern world, we have this push to equate 
animals with persons, right? You know, chickens are people too. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. Chickens do not write music or poetry. Chickens do not look up at the sky and wonder what's out there. Chickens do not listen to podcasts to reflect on what does it mean to be a chicken. Mm -hmm. uh, chickens do not build cathedrals or skyscrapers. Mm -hmm. And nor do chickens get into airplanes and fly them into skyscrapers. Uh, what mm -hmm. is my point here? Freedom is the capacity for love, but we can also abuse that gift of freedom and use it for unlove. We have a responsibility. We have a moral responsibility to use our freedom to love. Moral responsibility makes zero sense when you're talking about an animal, right? And I often tell this story to my students. There was a, a guy who fell in a gorilla cage at the San Diego, San Diego Zoo some years ago, and he got brutally beaten by the gorilla. Oh, no. Did he sue the gorilla? Or did he sue the zoo, the owners of the zoo? And what, what's the difference there? But in this own guy's mind, he was so confused when he was being interviewed. He said, uh, yes, I fell into the gorilla cage and I tried to reason with the gorilla, but it didn't work. <laughs> mm. <laughs> like he was trying to reason with the gorilla. Like, no, don't, please don't beat me up. Why did it not work? Because the gorilla does not have reason. Now, a gorilla is a pretty high form of life and... And there are very interesting things that you can teach gorillas to do, sign language and all kinds of fascinating stuff. Nonetheless, in the end, there is a fundamental distinction between the human being and the animal. And the distinction is freedom. And the word we use to describe an animal who has freedom, that is a rational animal, is the word person. Mm. Tony, you are a person made in the image and likeness of God. And that image and likeness of God is revealed not only in your rational ability to think and choose, but also in your body. And you are called to choose to use your body in such a way that you truly image God, that you become a true gift of yourself, that you make a true gift of yourself. That means to give the gift of your body, either in marriage or in a celibate way that you are a gift to others Either way, one way or the other, you're called in one way or the other to be a husband and a father. That is very, very different than what animals even have the capacity for. I hope that is all food for thought that helps you out. I am, think am I that, missing something? No, I, maybe a little bit, but I, I want to just say that that really did speak so much to this question of how is Adam different from all the other animals? And See, if you were the same, if you were just an animal, he would have found plenty of helpers among the animals. Hmm. But the fact that he remained alone after naming the animals, there mm -hmm. was still not a helper found for him. Yeah. That's the difference. So I, I, I feel all that in the kind of powerful symbolism of the story and the deep kind of reflection on the human person. Yes. And being created for relationship with other human persons. Yes, yes. Um, Which is also the gift of woman. We didn't even get to that point in the story. But when woman comes into the picture. An aspect of Tony's question here may be needing to be clarified whether or not 
was it sort of a mistake? Like God made mates for all the animals, but he uh, made Adam just male without a mate. What, oh yeah, what I was knew that? there was some other element there. Yeah. So let's let's clarify here, Tony. There are actually two creation stories. They're complementary, meaning they're different, but they shine light on one another. And in the first creation story, which is the seven day story, and let me just rewind for a moment. I hope this this should be clear to every everyone. Sadly, sometimes it isn't, so I need to clarify. Especially here as Catholics, we do not read the Genesis text as if it were a scientific account of the way the world came to be. This is not a science book. This is, this is mystical poetry. It's using mystical poetry to get at a much richer, deeper meaning, right? So, we have to read the symbols of Genesis and in the uh, seven-day creation story, it's loaded, loaded with symbols. I won't get into all the meaning of the symbols, but nonetheless, seven-day creation story. On the sixth day, God says, let us, interesting, God refers to himself in the plural. Mm-hmm. Let us make man in our image, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he said, be fertile. John Paul II says, it's as if God is looking within himself for the pattern with which he's going to make male and female in the image and likeness of God. God is a Trinitary exchange, Trinitarian exchange of life-giving love. And notice in being male and female in this call to be fruitful and multiply, the union of the two in the normal course of events leads to a third. We have something here of a revelation of the Trinitarian mystery. God is not sexual, But nonetheless, our sexuality provides an echo in the created order of that eternal, uncreated order of life-giving love in the Trinity. But the point here, Genesis 1, the seven-day story, male and female are made simultaneously together, and they're called to union. In the second creation story, there is a kind of separation between the creation of Adam and the awakening of Adam as male and female. But the key again is to recognize Adam is not first the male, it's the human being. And then there's that mysterious deep sleep. John Paul II has so much to say about that deep sleep. Uh, For now, I'll just say it's the sense of a return to non-being. But in that deep sleep, Adam, John Paul II says, is dreaming of a helper suitable for himself. Oh, wow. And in that dream, he wakes up and his dream had come true. <laughs> there is another suitable for him, a helpmate suitable for him. Mm. This means the woman is also made in the image and likeness of God, has the freedom, which is the capacity to love as a person made in the image of God. And they see They're the same in that they share the same humanity, but they're different. There's such a beautiful sense of longing and anticipation and and fulfillment in that story that I think we can see in our own personal story. Absolutely. Can relate to that. None of it makes sense if we don't see the difference between the mere animal and the human being. I'll close on this. There's a song lyric that's coming to mind from a band. The name of the band should should give away where they're coming from. The band is called the Bloodhound Gang. 
<laughs> and the song lyrics go like this. We ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do it on the Discovery Channel. <laughs> oh, goodness. Right there is the attack on the dignity of what it means to be a person. You see, we see there also the idea that this modern push to equate human beings and animals, you cannot raise animals to the level of the human person. But you can reduce the human person to the level of animals. And almost always the push to equate human beings and animals is to justify human beings behaving like animals. Mm. In other words, to rid ourselves of moral responsibility for our choices, just as the song goes. We ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do it on the Discovery Channel. Or not. No, we are much, <laughs> much more. Are we mammals? Yes, but we are much, much more than mere mammals. We are persons mm. made in the image and likeness of God, which means we have the capacity to love. Yes. And love is real. Tony, that was such a good question. Keep pressing in, Tony. Uh, Keep yeah, going for it. That's great. Uh, I have an anonymous question for you. Could you explain relics? as in pieces of saints' bodies, through the lens of the TOB. It seems a little bit creepy and even disrespectful to have the head of St. Catherine separated from the rest of her body on display, or others like the heart of St. John Vianney and hundreds of saints' bone fragments in altars or churches around the world. Why do we venerate the bodies of saints, and why is it okay to have the pieces of a saint's body in dozens and even hundreds of places? <laughs> Great question. Yeah, it does seem a little odd, doesn't it? Maybe even counter to the respect that we are called to show the body, that there are indeed, you know, we have pieces of saints here and pieces of saints there, and certain districts in Italy lay claim to the head of this saint, and other districts of Italy lay claim to the arm of the same saint, and what is going on there? Some crazy business. I'm pretty sure, did we address a similar question in a previous podcast? It's ringing a bell. We're going to eventually have to inventory all our <laughs> podcasts so we can reference them per appropriately. But theology of the body certainly shines a light for us on relics, although John Paul II in his actual catechesis never references relics. We are meant to take the fundamental principles of theology of the body and apply them, and we can apply them to questions of, of relics. So, yeah, I don't, I don't want to just dismiss some of the weird or creepy element and try to whitewash it or make it sound nice and all clean and spiritual, because maybe there was some funk going on in separating, you know, this saint's arm from the rest of the torso and taking it somewhere, and maybe there has been a superstition connected with it here and there that got out of line. But I think the basic principle is fitting. I'll just share a very recent story. My sister Emily, we talked about this on a previous podcast. My sister Emily died uh, in September after a two-year battle with cancer. And before my mother finally closed the casket, she took a pair of scissors and 
took a few snippets from behind her head of her hair. And she asked the siblings, would we like a little clip of our sister's hair? And I was quick to say, yes. Mm. Yes. Why? Why do I want that? Mm. This is my sister's hair. This is part of her person. It's a reminder to me of who she was. And I have that in an envelope and I have it tucked away in a a special place, even a sacred place for me. And it allows me to remain connected to that person Mm -hmm. because the body reveals the person. And yes, that body by and large, but for the, the little remnants of her hair that we retained, that body is in the ground. That body's going to return to dust. But even that dust will be raised up on the last day. And we show great reverence. We should show great reverence for the body even after death because that body is a seed of the resurrection. It's not only a sign that reminds us of who that person was here on earth. And I think the relics do that as well. They remind us of those that saint Right? I have relics of John Paul II. Uh, I was granted a drop of his blood mm. by Cardinal Jeevish, who was John Paul II's private secretary for 40 years uh, in a private audience with the Cardinal. He granted me that relic. That is one of my most treasured possessions mm-hmm. as a drop of this saint's blood. Mm. And I was appointed the guardian of this relic. That is an incredible gift and responsibility, which could get weird, could get funky, in its proper place as an actual physical reminder of the physical presence and person of Pope John Paul II. Similarly with my sister's hair, similarly with a little piece of bone that I have of Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross. Yes, it can get weird, but in the proper perspective, the body reveals the person. The body is the reminder to us of the person, who that person was here on planet Earth, but also even those relics are like little seeds hope in the resurrection of that saint's body, which even if parts of the body are strewn around different places of the world, that somehow mysteriously, that dust, if you will, will be gathered up at the end of time and re-inspired. That's our hope. I think, and too, in seeing the parts of the body in different places, which, you know, was well described and I think, you know, got at some of the questions that come up in our hearts. We are seeing the the love in the heart of that saint for people all over the world. That not only our desire to remain close That's to the saint. That's a great saint, point, Wendy. I hadn't thought of that. But the saint's desire to be close to us. It's kind of like, hey, is, isn't it not a little bit like this is my body given up for you, right? Yeah. There's a there's an expression of the the love and the the desire to remain connected to the graces that flowed through that person. And in fact, there have been people who have experienced miraculous healings through contact yes. with relics. So our our reverence for that, the body of someone who was particularly close to God has been rewarded at times by divine power, Great you know, point, lover. transforming lives. And those saints in heaven desire to continue to work powerfully on that's earth. power you know i had never quite thought of it in that perspective and and a whole new perspective just got opened up to me of, of real graces that 
our Savior himself, how, he says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I, I will be with you to the end of the age. How is he with us? This is my body given up for you. There is a certain a Eucharistic element in these relics. And underlying all of that, the church is underscoring for us continually the physicality of our faith. And when we, we hyper-spiritualize things, or let me put it this way, when we disincarnate our faith, it's no longer the Christian faith. It's something else altogether. Sacraments, sacramentals, relics, the smells and bells of Catholicism are the continual reminder of the physicality of our faith. The word was made flesh. flesh. The body is not something we reject. We don't need to shed the body to reach the transcendent because the transcendent has lowered himself to take on the body and then to raise the body up into the life of the Trinity. Our faith is the faith that we have in the body of Christ and the relics are a kind of extension of that Eucharistic reality, mm-hmm. without a doubt. Thanks, Wendy, for opening that up for me, too. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. I love it. I love being Catholic. Me, too. <laughs> <laughs> so, speaking of saints, Caleb has a question about Mary. Caleb. Yeah. Caleb says, I've struggled with a fear of going overboard with devotion to Mary. I grew up around diehard Protestants that believe Mary takes our attention away from Jesus. I know it's really the opposite, but I still struggle. Yes, Mary keeps our attention on Jesus. I guess I always had this specific hang-up. Despite everything I know about her and everything I've heard, I worry about going overboard. Caleb, bless you, brother. I would say just initially that the fear uh, is not unfounded because some Catholics have gone overboard. And the Second Vatican Council, in its teaching on Mary, it almost begged and pleaded for theologians and for the lay faithful to be very careful in not uh, going overboard. And I think a sign, a telltale sign of going overboard in a false devotion to Mary would be when we set up Mary as kind of the, the friendly face and God, and oh, I, can't, I can't approach God, I'll, I'll, I'll go to Mary because she's friendly and kind and uh, she's one of us and God's kind of mean and I'll go to her because she's got this direct line to God. This, 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 would, this would not be our faith. Uh, and you can even find in the writings of, of some saints some exaggerations here. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we must not go from one exaggeration to the other. Although it's understandable that we do that because we're prone to do that because we're human beings. And when we're looking for that note in like tuning a guitar, you know, sometimes you go sharp when you're looking for the note and then to find it, you sometimes go flat. Then you go a little less sharp and a little less flat and then you, ah, then you find the note. I urge you, Caleb, to continue that journey in finding the right note in your Marian devotion. And the right note is to recognize, as St. Louis de Montfort himself said, trying to separate Mary from Jesus, it would be easier to try to separate light from the sun. 
you can't have one without the other. I like to put it this way. No Mary, N-O, no Mary, no Jesus, right? Mary is the way chosen by God. We didn't come up with this. We didn't make this up. It was God's choice to choose this woman to be the one who would give flesh to the second person of the Trinity. For all eternity, Christ is the offspring of Mary. Christ is the flesh of Mary. Bone of her bone, flesh of her flesh. That's the way it works, right? So no Mary, no Jesus. Also, no Mary, K-N-O-W. The more we come to know Mary, the more we come to know Jesus. Mary has one role and goal to lead us to Jesus. If any devotion to Mary would lead us away from Jesus, then it's not an authentic devotion to Mary. I had a really powerful experience with Mary that I can't even remember. I don't even know if you'll remember this story, but just came to Please my mind as share. we're sharing with Caleb about this question. When I was um, maybe 22, I think, I was on a, a retreat about Mary, and it was an Ignatian retreat where we were um, praying through scriptures, Ignatian meaning based on the teachings of St. Ignatius mm-hmm. about going to the scripture and placing yourself in the scene and and allowing you know God to speak to you through that. So I was on this retreat and one of our prayer assignments was to just allow Mary to introduce herself to us. Mm. And as I went to pray, I realized I had caution in me about Mary. I thought, you know, she kind of makes me feel distant from Protestants, she makes me a little embarrassed because, you know, other Christians think she's strange, and I don't, I don't know if I want her hanging around me because <laughs> they might not like me. I don't know. It was just yeah. this discomfort yeah. at my twenty-two-year-old, you know, stage of life. And um, as I went into this time of prayer, I was feeling that, you know, like oh, Mary, kind of feeling, and. Um, as I really quieted my heart and opened myself to let her introduce herself to me. It was at a time when I had moved away from my family after college, trying to you know, meet people and just feeling sort of alone in the world. And in this prayer time, I had this image of Mary coming to me with a photo album of all the people who had been important in mm, my life. Mm, beautiful. And she sat down next to me and opened this photo album. I don't think I know the story. Yeah, it was really amazing. And just, I mean, I didn't make it up. Yeah. It didn't feel, it felt like a gift that was just given to me by Mary, that she's showing me the people that are important to me, that I'm missing. Mm. And it was like she was saying, I'm your trusted friend. Mm. I'm the one that you can share your heart with and and that my heart was symbolized by this photo album. Awesome. And it was such a, a relief to me of that anxiety about do I want to be close to Mary? It was like it was totally gone. You know, just this gift that she became to me in that moment. So Caleb, there's the invitation. Ask Mary to introduce herself to you. Mm. If Jesus is our brother, mm-hmm. then Mary is our mother. In the family of God, we need to give due reverence to everybody who's part of the family. And really, we're just following Jesus in giving ourselves in this way to Mary because Jesus gave himself 
to Mary. He entrusted his very being to Mary. Marian devotion is really a following of Christ. It's a following of Christ's devotion to his mother. So Jesus, teach us how to be as devoted to Mary as you were, no more and no less. Amen. Amen. Well, I have to share something I'm really excited about in light of that last question. Awesome. I am working on a course right now, which you know, Wendy, because you know I'm hard at work in my office these days. Definitely. Designing this course that we have called Theology of the Body and the Marian Mystery. Mm-hmm. Mary is at the epicenter of theology of the body because she gave flesh to the second person of the Trinity. And unfolding the teaching, the church's teaching about Mary, I've always known this, but I know it ever more deeply as I unfold the contents of this course. Everything the church teaches about Mary is a safeguard of the mystery of the incarnation. That's what it's there for to safeguard. When we distance ourselves from Mary, we end up distancing ourselves from the Word made flesh. So I'm holding this out just to, to put this little seed, to plant this little seed in the soil of your heart. In October of 2020, I'll be offering this course through the Theology of the Body Institute for the very first time. I am so excited to teach it. Theology of the Body and the Marian Mystery. Click on the link, theologyofthebody.com there in your show notes and it'll take you to our schedule of courses. I don't know if we've posted that one yet, but it is coming up next October. And do consider, if you feel led, if you're moved by what we're doing at the Institute here, we need your support to keep doing what we're doing. Uh, Consider becoming a patron, and we would love to continue to offer you ongoing formation that is exclusive to our patron community. Thanks for listening to another episode with us, Wendy. It's always a joy to do this with you. Yes, it I is. love your insights. And I love yours. I learn stuff from you. Me too. Listening. <laughs> Thanks. Was that that you learned stuff from yourself? <laughs> no. <laughs> you said me too. Sorry, I meant that I, I know, learned from I you. I know what you meant. I'm just goofing. <laughs> Dear listeners, each one of you is an indispensable irreplaceable, unrepeatable gift of life and of love. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West comes to you from the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione and production by Sounder and Key. Christopher and Wendy hope the information presented is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, you can find a list of trusted counselors and psychologists in the show notes. I don't know. How much time do we have? Mark, edit this out. What's our, what's our time? I forgot. Okay. Picking up from here, Mark. Here you go. Ready? One, two, three. Oh, yeah!